0: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Well, hello, hello. I received quite good feedback on my Terry Towling shirt on social media this week. It was in our promo video. Good. Was that good for your sort of dopamine levels? Very much so. Yeah, I think. Terry Towling as a fabric, it's on its way back. And I, th- I think you should get on the Terry Towling train.
2: But I think you're the person to sort of lead the towel wagon, I think. <laughs> Don't you think? You think I could be a Terry Towling influencer? I think you could, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, as I said last week, it's, it's very absorbent. Now, I do have a bone to pick with you. Oh, I always hate it when you say that. You know, I listen to the podcast just to listen through before it goes out. I heard all that stuff you were saying while I went to put my shirt on last week about how you weren't really interesting, oh, yeah. how you were only humouring me, <laughs> you didn't really care about my Terry Towning shirt. So I know that in,
2: in what I've just told you, you, you're just feigning interest. I've basically been exposed, haven't I? <laughs> it's basically just the sort of it's just – I've basically been rumbled. By yourself. I think I was counting on the fact that you wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> Maybe it was like, you know – I was doing the equivalent of the test card. Do you remember the test card? I remember it well,
1: yes, although I wonder if we sound ancient to some of our younger listeners by mentioning it. It was the thing they put up when the BBC wasn't on, yes? Yeah. So so when we were young, um, and I imagine even more so when you were young, Ed, there were... Hours in any given day were where the TV channels weren't broadcasting. And instead of it just being static, they would show this card, which supposedly was like lots of lines and colours for the engineers to be able to fine tune the transmitters. But it also had a picture of a, a girl with a did she, was it Humpty Dumpty she had in the middle of it.
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was very peculiar when you think about when you think back on it.
1: What's really peculiar is that I remember as a kid sometimes it just being on and not then going away from the TV, just sitting there and looking at it and listening to the Muzak playing. That and pages from CFAX.
2: Oh, I was really a big – I was big for CFAX. Oh, yeah, me too. Honestly, I was big for – much. I was much more CFAX than Teletext, but I was big for CFAX, honestly. Well, well
1: Teletext, it was the Oracle at first, wasn't it? It was CFAX and the Oracle.
2: Mm, ITV
1: wasn't approved <laughs> of, but – What would you look at on CFAX then? What were your go-to pages?
2: 101. Was that just the index? Oh, news. Was that the index or the news? I think it was the news, wasn't
1: it? Yeah. 696 BBC Jobs, I remember that. Sport was 300, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. you were missing out on a whole world of quizzes and CFAX art over on Oracle and whatever Channel 4's equivalent was, Ed. Now, I did want to ask you about something. Go on. I saw on Twitter that there, there is a job going in your office. I had a few people tweet me and say, will you be applying for the job? And I said that I'm holding out
2: f- to become like a, a, an eminence grise. I mean, it would be amusing to have you as my chief of staff, wouldn't it? It would definitely be like maximal amusement value. Who would that be in the West Wing? Oh, Leo McGarry. I think I'd be a good Leo McGarry.
3: No, I think you would.
1: I was interested to see that you chose Twitter as as, as a medium for advertising it because it's like doing an open casting as what's an open what do you mean so for example if if you were trying to cast a film you don't just put an advert in a news agent's window or in in the daily mirror saying oh we're looking for somebody to play the lead in the new batman film you 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 target it a bit more closely or or, or i think we're probably doing some
2: I think we're probably doing some targeting as well.
1: So so what is the what is cuz I thought because you're going so broad on it you could we could do a little spin off of the podcast like a reality sort of thing like The X Factor but it could be the Ed <laughs> Factor and we could have people competing
2: to to sort of run your life for you. I mean that is really funny. That is really funny. I mean you could definitely There'd be definitely some entertainment value yeah,
1: you'd but. be like the Simon Cowell we could have uh lindsay who whose j- job it was as one of the judges i I would be happy to be another. we could set tasks like you know the 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 applicants would have to i don't know jog alongside you in a train station as you as you almost miss a train testing motor skills ability to catch me as I
2: trip over a yeah banana peel reassuring you that you don't look like a badger, yeah. Honestly, I mean, we're definitely. I'm definitely going to consult you on the questions.
1: Uh, guessing how many changes of clothing you need in any given day to account for spillages. Yeah, that's an important one. Suppressing videos of you in compromising positions.
2: Yep, yeah, definitely. Thermal baths with
1: you. So the ed factor then. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what thought process I I, I just saw go through across uh, your face? I, th- I th- saw you think I've said I'll take it under ad- advisement too many times recently, so I can't use that one. So
2: I'll just I'll just give him a slight eye rolly Yeah, no, I'll just give a sort of insincere yes. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, honestly, if you want to apply, mm. don't call us; we'll call you. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: All right. shall we talk about what we're talking about this week then? Well, Jeff, this week we're talking about a subject close to your heart—football. Not now. Meat pie, sausage roll. Come on, England, give us a goal! Ooh, we got a corner. That
1: was the video we were in, was it? That's right. Yes, a, a novelty attempt at uh, a hit in the nineteen ninety-eight World Cup. Did it get anywhere? Uh, I think it got to like number fifty-seven or something like that. But
2: mm, that's not. They, bad. Showed, they
1: showed it on Richard and Judy, so it was. It was on what? the front
2: page of the Daily Star. We did all right with it. Wow, that's quite good. Um, But no, look, this week, we're talking about how football clubs are owned and run. But before people who don't like football say, well, I'm not listening to that, we think this has broader, including Jeff, we think this has broader lessons about where power lies and how our economy is run more widely. The now-abandoned plan for a new European Super League a couple of weeks ago sparked a big debate about the governance of English football. Critics of the plan argued it was just the latest demonstration of football clubs being run in the interests of international investors rather than their fans and local communities. We're talking about why this matters and exploring ideas for how football clubs could be run in a different way. First, we're taking inspiration from Germany. We're talking to football journalist Uli Hesse about Germany's 50-plus-1 model of football ownership, which guarantees fans majority control of their clubs and asking what we can learn from it. Then we're talking to Thomas Hanna, for the Democracy Collaborative, and Vidya Alexson from Power to Change about their ideas for promoting fan ownership in the UK and the lessons football offers for problems in the economy more widely. And finally, we're talking to former professional footballer turned sports academic Alex Culvin about why women's football is so often ignored in these conversations and what to do about it. What's your reason to be cheerful? It's Beatle related. Yes.
1: Many of us, uh, as as we move through life, will have a CT scan. Do you know who we have to thank, at least in part, for that? The Beatles. Eh? You look incredulous. I'm going to explain exactly how. So EMI, the record company, was back in the day also an electronics company, and they sold consumer goods like radios and record players and kettles and things, but also up, up to anything including defence. And in the 1960s, the Beatles were generating huge amounts of profits for them worldwide, up to about 30% of their profits was just coming off the Beatles, which meant there was more money slushing around to be put into development. There was a guy called Godfrey Hounsfield, who was an electrical engineer who had developed a computer for them, who then used some of this extra funding that they had for development to look into the the viability of a, a medical scanner using that same technology now later um, there was government money went into it as well about sixty percent of it I think was government money but the thinking is that it's the fact that the Beatles made so much money for EMI that EMI had so much money to put into the development of this scanner that we have the the cat scanner or the CT scanner
2: Are you serious? Yeah.
1: How interesting. Yeah. You're just a font of wisdom. Knowledge, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What
2: about you? What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine actually relates back to, uh, and I considered saying this at the end, but it relates back to the earlier conversation we had, which I know we've talked about Line of Duty before on the podcast, and obviously, by the time this goes out, we'll have had its final... Episode. I don't think it's the final, final episode. I think it's just the final episode of series six. Hmm. Um, 11 million people watched the penultimate episode last Sunday. It's very exciting. What's your theory? Well, actually, we can. I was going to say, what's your theory? No, I'm totally. I just think it's just impossible to know. I mean, I basically want to believe and do believe that Ted Hastings is a good guy because I just can't bear the idea that he's not a good guy and I met him and he seemed nice. And, you you know, know, you met the actor. It was him. Don't spoil my illusions. Are you saying it's not real? (laughs) (laughs) Having these television moments where lots of people are watching the same thing, somehow I find it kind of somewhat reassuring. I don't know why. Do you know what I mean? I do. There's something unifying about it. It's a bit like the FA Cup final used to be, he
1: said, tying it back to the episode. Not that I've ever watched an FA Cup final. I used to watch it for hours. It was really a big deal. I'm afraid it isn't the same. When I was doing a radio show, once the FA sent in the FA Cup um, into the studio, you know, every now and again you'd get PR agencies sending things into the studio, yeah. and it came in with two really burly bodyguards. You didn't urinate in it, now, no, did you? but I put my head in it and went ooh, and they got really annoyed with me. Why? Because I don't have this reverence for the FA Cup. Oh I see. Given that you thought I urinated in it, that's that's how low your expectation is. Putting my head in it must be quite a relief to you.
2: I didn't know which sort of period of your life we were talking about. <laughs> you say pre or post-sobriety. Exactly.
1: Reasons to be cheerful. A podcast about ideas with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: To start our conversation about football and maybe the way it's done in other countries, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Uli Hesse, who's a football journalist working for Eleven Freunde, or Elf Freunde, magazine in Berlin, and author of Tor, the story of German football. Uli, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. So, go on, tell us about Elf Freunde. Where does the name come from? <laughs> well, it means Eleven
3: Friends, and uh, it goes back to a children's book from the 1950s. Um, which is actually set in Berlin, which, where I'm based right now. And, and the book is called You've Got to Be Eleven Friends. And that even that goes back to a saying, uh, one of the earliest German football coaches is supposed to have said that. You know, you're going to be successful
2: if you're eleven friends. It was a long time ago. Perhaps you could start, Uli, um, by giving us an overview of how football clubs are run in Germany, because it is quite different in terms of their ownership and and perhaps you can tell us about the 50 plus one rule and how that works. The German word for club is Verein, which yes it means
3: club and, and yet it doesn't. Uh, we have specific laws in Germany that, that tell you what is a club and what isn't a club. So it used to be in the old days that when you formed a club you had to register it you know with the, with the local municipality or whatever. And there's a couple of things, you know, that you have to fulfill in order to be a club. There's, there's a minimum amount of members. But most importantly, you have to be non-profit for the common good. Everybody can join the club, things like that. So you've got these, you know, cozy, old-fashioned clubs, you know, not, not owned by anybody, uh, registered, uh, free for everybody, run by the members, you know. Normally the president, isn't, uh, hardly anyone gets paid, you know. Uh, not normally, the president is, is an honorary, you know, an honorary president, and um, um, of course, of course, that posed a problem once professional football came in.
2: What, what year are we talking about, Uli, when this debate is happening?
3: Well, frankly, we're talking uh, talking about mo- the most part of the, of the night of the twentieth century. So the debate is very, very old. We finally turned professional in the nineteen sixties, and then, you know, uh, at the turn of the century pretty much at the turn of the century, it was around uh, in the late, very late 90s, there was a the question of how, you know, how German clubs could deal with, you know, the huge football boom of the 90s and all the money that was coming into the game. There was lots of money outside of Germany. And it was felt that, you know, how can, how can a German club generate more money? And the obvious answer was, you know, by bringing in an investor, you know, somebody who would invest in the club. After a lot of soul-searching Uh, The German FA first changed their rules. They said, okay, we allow limited companies or businesses to participate, to compete in the Bundesliga. But of course, they they didn't want to turn the clubs as a whole into into a business. So basically, Germans decided it would be good to have the cake and eat it at the same time. So it means the clubs were allowed to turn their professional football divisions into limited companies and they, these limited companies could then look for investors um, but the majority of the shares had to remain in the possession of the parent club so the fifty plus one literally means that fifty percent of the shares of the voting shares you know plus one share had to remain in the possession of the
2: parent club and and what is the impact do you think that has on the relationship between clubs and their fans? Because it's noticeable that there were no German clubs in the European Super League, for example. You have to understand that it,
3: it's just, it, it, this is not a point where our relationship to our clubs has changed. We have always felt that our clubs are not there to make money. They are not part of the entertainment industry. Uh they, We love it if they win the games, but then it, it's not even, the whole point of the club is not even to you know, to win things, to win silverware. The point of the club is to serve a community. You know, they, have, they the club exists th- through the community and for the community. You know, I did I did a long piece for, 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 for two magazine about Borussia Dortmund when they were you know grabbing the public imagination. You know, with Jurgen Klopp as the coach, and I talked to the chairman. He said that in England, the fans had more or less accepted the fact that they are just customers you know they think of themselves as fans and of course they are fans because they follow the club but basically they're treated like customers but you can never tell that the a german fan you know if you tell them they're customers you know you've got a big big problem
1: in terms of being a fan and very much not a customer how how is that experience different in in germany Is it affected things like uh, broadcasting rights and ticket prices and the times matches are played and so on
3: Yes, I do think the fact that how we look at our clubs, uh, how, we, how we think our clubs should be, uh, that affects the way we look at football. Um, and certainly quite a few things that are very positive in Germany, um, they have to do with that. We just got rid of the, of the Monday night games because there were protests against pe- people, you know. Well, same as in England, part of German football culture and experience is traveling with your team. And of course you know traveling to an away game on Monday night is very very tough for you know if you hold down a job because you know you can't get to work on Tuesday morning. As far as I'm concerned the most impressive thing is that you can watch a lot of football free on terrestrial television. So there used to be a a free-for-all football show which would show the games just roughly an hour after after the game's ended on a Saturday. You know the pay TV stations didn't quite like that. You know? So there was a debate about how to, what to do. The pay TV show, they pressured the public TV station you know, into uh, showing the games later. And then what happened was, was um, to cut a long story short, what happened was that the German fans just boycotted the pay TV station. They
1: were, were, were forced to relent. I did want to ask you about what looks like, maybe it may be a little trouble in paradise, which is um, RB Leipzig. So t- tell us about tell us the story and uh, and what that says about the uh, fifty plus one rule.
3: You've probably heard that um, that Red Bull are very much interested in, in sports, all sorts of sports, sports, but also some other sports. And they bought an Austrian club. I think it was in two thousand five, a tradition laden Austrian club called Austria Salzburg. And then they renamed the club Red Bull Salzburg, and they changed the colours, and they changed the changed the badge and everything. And then they felt they should do the same in Germany. And then they tried to buy a club and then rename it. And then they learned the hard way that, A, they couldn't buy a club, and they most certainly couldn't rename it. So then they retreated and, and, and you know, tried to find a way how to get into the German games, how to get around the 50 plus 1 rule, uh, in fact. And they found a way of doing that, which was they formed their own club. To this day, I think they have only 16 or 17 members so they very cleverly have found a way to discourage people from becoming members,
1: and all, all those members are kind of Red Bull insiders. Yeah,
3: yeah. Of course, they couldn't call it Red Bull; that's not allowed in Germany. Yeah. So they came up with RB, which is you know, yeah. it means uh, lawn ball, lawn ball, uh, Rasenballsport, lawn ball sports. But obviously, it's it's you know, it's for Red Bull. The tricky part was that having formed the club. Normally, that would mean that you have to start at the very, very bottom of the league pyramid, you know, with your team. And they found a, a nice, a, a clever way around that, because there was a local club nearby, which was playing, I think, in the fifth division, maybe. And they sort of took over their license for a couple of years, you know, so they, they didn't have to start at the very bottom of the league pyramid.
1: They started out in the, I think it was the fifth tier. And, and what has what the reaction been like amongst fans? Have they been shunned? um yeah well i did a
3: piece once when the club called me <laughs> uh i did a piece for, 4 for Two magazine when they were in the second division uh and the club then called me uh because
2: the headline was the most hated club in the land can i ask you a slightly different question Ali? which is the english premier league i think is the most watched league in the world um the money attracts some of the best players obviously in the world when you look at the English league leagues and the German system, do you think, thank God we've got the German league? I wouldn't want the English league. Or do you think, well, there's some aspects of the English league I like, but I'm still happy with the German setup? How do you think about it? I know what you're getting.
3: I personally, I'm very, very glad that we have the system that we have. It's that. Of course, not everybody thinks so. Of course, not all the fans think so. But I sometimes suspect that most men in charge of clubs or, or, or leagues or, you know, associations don't realise that, you know, winning is not the only thing fans are interested in. As corny as it may sound, it's not just about the winning.
2: Uli it's, it's been it's been fantastic to hear you and to have you on. Thank you so much.
3: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: One of the things we heard said during the European Super League fiasco is that we, we could run the risk of becoming more like America, which, of course, of course is something we, uh, we hear a lot in any number of ways. But how, how true is that? So to get a picture uh, of that, and not, not just that, we're going to speak to Research Director at the Democracy Collaborative, Thomas Hanna. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You join us from Washington.
4: Yeah, right right outside of Washington, D.C. And, and I'll just say from the outset that uh, I was born in the U.K. and I'm a Watford Football Club supporter and we just got promoted to the Premier League. So uh, so that's excellent. And in the U.S., I'm a D.C. United supporter.
1: And how, how are D.C. United doing?
4: Uh, terrible. Uh, probably for the past 15 years or so, we've been terrible. But uh, it gives you a good perspective on football to be uh, on the lower rungs every once in a while.
1: Maybe you can start by just telling us what what do you think this situation um that they got in with the the Euros, European Super League proposal what do you think it shows us about the underlying problems with English football
4: for me it shows the underlying problems of commercialization of football in general uh, especially European football and you know for me there's i think three things related to commercialization and first I think the ESL announcement itself really surprised a lot of people in terms of its timing and also the really farcical nature of its introduction. But the writing's really been on the wall uh, for quite some time with regards to football and commercialization. And we really can't forget that the advent of the Premier League itself was a major money grab and a major power grab for some of the biggest clubs and commercial interests in the country. And that, you know, it really upset decades of precedent around how the sport should be organized. And since then, we've seen repeated billionaire takeovers of clubs all over Europe. We see ever-rising game day and ticket prices. We see the timing of games uh, um, you know, to fit TV schedules, the expense of supporters being in the stands and being able to travel to away games. And we see the increased amount of games being shown on really these like pay-per-view and exclusive TV channels and, and so on.
1: Well, let's talk about the differences because you've lived both in the UK and in the the States. Tell us about the differences and why it is that this proposal for the European Super League would have represented a, a shift towards a US style sports league.
4: I think in the wake of the ESL announcement, people have probably heard the word cartel <laughs> mentioned a few times. And, but that's exactly what the ESL would have been, right? A closed group of elite for-profit business enterprises that collectively fix prices and wages, restrict competition, manage supply, and, and so on and so forth. And the reason we know that's the model is because this is the model of most U.S. professional sports leagues, especially the major ones like the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and so on. And these leagues are you <laughs> Actually, they're just distinct business enterprises that negotiate their TV and sponsorship deals. They control team merchandising. They establish where teams will play and who can be an owner. Uh, and they enforce numerous rules on team operations and salaries and business practices and so on. And in many ways, these teams are really just franchises that are allocated out to ownership groups that have been you know, pre-vetted and approved by the league. Most people know the critical to this structure, to this cartel structure of American sports leagues, is that there's no promotion or relegation. You know, the same teams play each other year in, year out, week in, week out, and new teams are only really allowed in if the league decides that an ownership group uh, can, you know, start a new team, or if an existing ownership group can move a team from one place to another place. And the overriding concern in in all American sports, above all else, is profit. Supporters and communities are really just an afterthought in in U.S. sports. That really gets us back to the ESL, because we know from some of the leaked documents uh, from the ESL fiasco and and some of the public statements that other people have made is that that's really what they were trying to do they were really trying to move to this type of cartel model and and for me it's really not a surprise that some of the U.S. Uh, ownership groups um, you know Arsenal, Liverpool, uh, Manchester United were the ones who are really driving this from the English perspective.
1: Well if, if the U.S. is in, in this respect at least the the sort of dystopia and we've heard from Uli, about how things are in Germany. Tell, tell us about you know what, what you think about uh, the, the ideas around democratic ownership in football. What what that looks like, and how it helps address some of the issues we talked about.
4: Yeah, I think one of the really big benefits of this whole fiasco, this whole episode with the ESLs, is it's really focused people's attention in on this question of ownership and control in football. And for instance, in the wake of the announcement. You know, I think a lot of people have heard about the 50 plus one model. For me, the 50 plus one rule and other supporter ownership schemes, they're important first steps, but I would like to really see something a bit more comprehensive. You know, to me, football clubs are really critical community institutions and and not just from a cultural perspective, but also from an economic and a social perspective. And in my mind, they should really belong to the community as a whole. In other words, even though someone in the community might not be an active supporter, you know, they're still impacted in various ways by the decision that the club makes or the decisions that the club doesn't make. So I'm personally in favor of what I call a democratic public ownership model, by which I mean that rather than simply just the supporters of the club having voting rights or having ownership rights, the clubs should have this multi-stakeholder ownership and governance arrangement. What does that mean in practice? So for me, I think there could be a, a, a lot of different arrangements, but one thing I'd really like to see is an ownership structure where at least the majority of ownership shares and, and voting rights within a club are split between various stakeholder groups, including supporters, 100% supporters, but also community and local business groups. You know, players are, I think, an interesting uh, component, an interesting stakeholder group, local government representatives, and, and so on and so forth.
2: That's a compelling vision, What's the way to get from here to there or to start to get from here to there?
4: I think that right now is a very important opportunity. Now that the ESL uh, saga is fresh in everybody's minds, I think that there's multiple ways of getting there. I I do think government action is going to be necessary. I do not think that the the FA is going to just come in and say, okay, we're going to do supporter ownership or, or community ownership like the Bundesliga did in the late 90s. I think we're far too far down the road of commercialization for, for that to happen. If we're not going to have government action that's universal, that establishes community ownership, I think an interesting first step might be setting up sort of like community buyout funds. So essentially... Any club that's in crisis or facing liquidation or insolvency due to the, you know, the terrible actions of their owners um, would be able to apply to this fund and get financial resources and get technical assistance and training to do a community buyout and take that club into public ownership.
2: I think it's worth us just touching on the fact that that this we're talking about football. There'll be lots of football fans listening to this podcast, but there are some people not so keen on uh, football, uh, brackets, Jeff, close brackets. This doesn't sit on its own, does it? I mean, this this is a bit of a parable for its wider issues in our economy, the nature of ownership, uh, shareholder primacy, and so on. Just say a little bit about that, Thomas, if you would.
4: Yeah, definitely. I 100% agree. I mean, first of all, I think that the way football is currently structured and operates really mirrors some of the trends that we've seen developing capitalism over the past several decades, particularly you know, things like rising inequality or you know, rising community instability and alienation. And all of this is tied to the things that you mentioned and also to you know, profit maximization and extraction. And you see this specifically, I think, with the inequality that exists between clubs, You know, the wealthy elites of the game on the one side and, and the rest of everybody else who's struggling. But you also see it with the inequality that exists within clubs. You, know, you have the billionaire owners on one hand wielding really unfettered power and control. And then on the other hand, you have the supporters and you have the outsourced and underpaid staff, the stewards, the cleaners, the caterers, you know, all of whom who have very little say in, in how the club is run and for what purpose the club is run. And I think on, on both of these fronts, one of the silver linings of the ESL for me, I hope, is that it really begins to demonstrate for people that there are these larger structural problems and it really starts to demonstrate what are some of the solutions around democratic public ownership, around community ownership, and also how we start moving in the direction of those approaches, of those models, and ultimately of a political economic system that is far more equitable, far more democratic, and far more just.
2: Now we have a thing on the podcast um, called the Jeffocracy, and I think it's fair to say, given my preceding comments and his, that he, Jeff is generally going to be a hands-off ruler. But I think it's particularly going to be the case when it comes to football, because he's not uh, the biggest football fan in the world. If he, Thomas, was to put you uh, in charge of reforming football, where would you where would you begin? What would you What would you do to to to, to start things off? You've got you've got re- relatively blank check. I think it's fair to say. In these circumstances?
4: Well, I think as much as ultimately I would like democratic public ownership of football, um, I also think that is vitally important to do the process right. You know, so, you know, we should do a process that mirrors the outcomes that we would like to see. So what I would do is, first of all, is bring the supporters, bring community groups, bring all the stakeholders who who have this, you know, very important connection to football, bring them together in a deliberative and participatory way to really think through what are the best strategies you know, for football, uh, you know, I have my ideas, but they may not be the best ideas. Other people probably have good ideas as, as well, but we need to get those ideas out there. We need to get them, in, you know, in the room and we need to work through them and decide collectively what is the best approach to this beautiful game, this, this sport that billions of people across the world love and are, are committed to. But, you know, there's so much in poten- potential in football to bring people together. So we should, we should mirror the outcome we would like to see and, and establish a process that is democratic.
2: Thomas Hanna, it's been really, really interesting uh, to talk to you, research director at the Democracy Collaborative, which I know does really important work in a whole range of areas. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work.
2: Now to talk about what all this might mean for football clubs in the UK I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Vidya Alexson who is Chief Executive of Power to Change, a charity promoting the growth of community businesses. Vidya thank you so much for joining us. Great to be
6: here.
2: I I was just saying before we turn the microphone on that you've done a really impressive and important report uh, on these issues. Just to start off with the first and most basic question, Why should we think of football clubs as important community assets in your view?
6: So I think if you look at most football clubs, particularly in the lower leagues, football clubs are probably the single biggest economic asset in their local community in many cases. They are vital community infrastructure. They bring people together in their communities. They do a huge amount of charitable work. They bring generations together so they really are part of the community infrastructure of many communities and that's why we think there is incredibly important to protect them.
2: And you have particular personal reasons as well don't you for kind of caring quite a lot about football clubs. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and and, and there is relevance to this to this uh, issue.
6: Yeah so I grew up in uh, in Wimbledon um, and as I when I was a kid Wimbledon kind of did that magical thing of climbing up the, the leaves. You were in the era winning. of
2: Vinnie Jones.
6: <laughs> it's the crazy gang. Yeah, Vinny Jones, Dennis Wise, Dave Besson, all of that. Um, you know, saw the amazing uh, victory in the FA Cup, the parade around the, you know, it was a even more of a suburban bit of London, not very exciting at, at the time I was growing up. And that was quite amazing to happen. And then, you know, much against the wishes of the fans, the club was ripped out of the town, taken to Milton Keynes. And then from the Embers were the Phoenix Club, as is the term used for kind of these clubs that are reborn. AFC Wimbledon uh, was then reborn. So, you know, sort of, I don't know, 30 year journey of uh, being ripped out of the town and now finally returned to the town and doing well.
2: And your report is pretty coruscating about the way football is currently run and how it sort of undermines this whole community vision of 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 the sport, T- tell us a little bit about that.
6: Yeah, I, I think the European Super League debacle kind of really illustrated how much football has come to be run in the interests of very remote, very um, you know, distant from the fans, owners, the wealthy owners of, of clubs, and run in the interests of those owners, run very much as businesses. And I think the anger that you saw from fans in response to the European Super League really demonstrated that for most people who really care about the game, football is about much more than the business end. And actually, you know, what we want to see is a return, a reconnection between football and its fans and its communities and the towns in which those clubs are based.
2: Tell us then what would community ownership of football look like and how could it help address financial instability and ensure clubs are run in the interests of communities? Because you've got a very specific proposal uh, that you've come forward with.
6: Yeah, so what we've proposed is a £400 million um, community club ownership trust. So what this would do is provide affordable loans to supporters trusts. So when groups of fans get together and form um, what's called a supporters trust, they would get a loan from, from the club community ownership trust, and then that would enable them to take over a club. So, you know, we don't think that this is a silver bullet, but it's a really important way in which we can start to both reconnect football to its roots, but also to stop the casino culture of football and to create more financial sustainability by having owners who will run clubs for the long-term, of the long-term interests of fans and and local places in which the clubs are based, rather than for their own kind of financial betterment and for the constant perpetual kind of chasing of promotion and more money, TV rights, all the rest of it that is currently what's driving the game.
2: And And to be clear, you're realistic that this has got to be about the Football League, but it can't touch the Premier Lee, because those clubs are just too much. They're just too what high value, essentially, yeah, in terms of money.
6: So four hundred million isn't going to buy you Manchester United Premier League, unfortunately. You know, I'm not going to be taking over from the Glazers anytime soon. But the German league does demonstrate that fan ownership can be part of the biggest, most successful clubs. I think the challenge of the UK is how do we get from here there so even if we recognize that in those bigger clubs fan ownership can be part of the model and it can be a successful part of the model there's a long way to go
1: are there any examples of uh, here in the uk football clubs following this model of community ownership that you're talking about
6: yeah i mean there are lots um and they're kind of divided into three categories so there's the the buyout kind of ones ones where the club is in trouble and um it gets bought out. So Hearts is a good example, and you know an interesting example because it's top of the Scottish Premiership. So an example where which demonstrates that this can lead to sort of footballing success. Then you've got phoenix clubs like AFC Wimbledon, sort of born out of the demise of a an existing club or the move out of a town from the existing by the existing club. Um, so clubs like AFC, like AFC Berry, which looks like it's uh, now going to take hold in Bury, Scarborough Athletic. And then you've got uh, protest clubs, so clubs like FC United of Manchester, which was born when the Glazers took over Manchester United as a breakaway group of fans, sort of rejected that whole idea of, you know, big money coming in from abroad and, and taking over the club and set up FC United. So you've got a lot of these clubs coming up and different varieties kind of within, within the mix.
1: Now... Talk to me a little bit about how this all fits into, more broadly, the agenda you have at Power to Change around community ownership and developing local economies.
6: The evidence is becoming increasingly clear that strong local economies depend on both sort of hard, the you know, the improvement in hard physical infrastructure, a lot of what we hear about with the levelling up agenda, so broadband, trains, um, you know, hard infrastructure, as well as social, what we're call, calling social infrastructure. And I think football fits very much into that view of what makes places better places to live, what brings communities together. So for us, you know, a lot of our work is about investing in improving the community infrastructure in places. And that's true whether it's a pub or a post office or a cafe or a football club. So to us that it's completely uh, sort of congruent with what we do on community ownership to be focusing on football, because these are really critical parts of the social infrastructure of places.
1: It's, it's really interesting to to think about it in this way. And we really uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on Uh, video, Alex, and thank you. Thanks very much. Finally, to talk about how, Women's football does or doesn't fit into all of this. Uh, We are joined by former professional football player and senior lecturer in sports business at the University of Salford, Alex Colvin. Hello.
0: Hi, everybody. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: It's great to have you. And what I mean, tell us about that that journey from footballer to sports academic. Where where were you and uh, how did you end up where you are now?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting journey, Jeff, to be honest. I think um, you know, those who probably knew me when I was really young probably wouldn't have thought I would do a PhD, but it, it kind of was like um, you know, serendipitous in a way. I um I did a master's at the University of Chester and my external examiner, um Dr. Martin Roderick, works up at Durham University. He was an ex-professional footballer, he read my dissertation, we had a lot in common. And it just went from there. He was like, you can apply for a PhD at Durham. And I was thinking like, PhD, no, that's not me at all. And yeah, it just went from there. Done my PhD, um, did a postdoc up at Durham. And then I was um, lucky enough to get a senior lecture position at University of Salford.
2: What was your PhD on, Alex?
0: Yeah, it was a social policy PhD, but it, it looked at women who work in male-dominated occupations um, specifically analysed employment conditions of professional women footballers in England.
2: How did you get into being a professional footballer? Tell us about your experience.
0: You know, Liverpool is just a really football crazy city. Um, my dad had a season ticket at, at Anfield, so we're, we're a family of Liverpool fans. And, and I just grew up with a with a group of boy cousins and all we did was talk or play football. And I think I was, I was really fortunate that my, I suppose, the, the generation that I was playing in it was just becoming a little bit more serious. So, like, I started off playing at Everton when I was like twelve, and Everton really invested in their women's team and kind of just taking the opportunities when they come for me. And I, I stayed at Everton until I was like eighteen before I moved to Leeds. So, and it was a really, you know, an, uh, just a, an excellent environment to learn how to be a footballer, I guess.
2: And you did indeed play in the FA Women's Cup final in two thousand and six, didn't you, against Arsenal?
0: Yeah, that was our first FA Cup final for Leeds. We got battered.
2: <laughs> yeah, and how do you look back on the sort of whole experience of that? Because you've obviously entered a very different phase of your life as an academic and so on. How do you look back on that phase of your life, your professional football life?
0: I think, to be honest, it's probably set me up well for the um, for the competitiveness of academia. So, <laughs> um, I think academia is really like a harsh environment you know people are very keen to give you dog. feedback all the time and it's it's very doggy eat dog in academia so I think in one way I guess it set me up quite nicely to be in a competitive environment and I guess you know I played football in in Holland as well so I experienced a different culture there and
1: how was it different in Holland
0: it was a really interesting environment I think the thing that struck me most Jeff was that every player was two-footed and i had a serious anxiety over that because i was a very left-footed player so i played left back and when the the one of the first training sessions it was like we had to use our right foot for the whole time or use your, your opposite foot and i was kind of like what is this craziness like i've never seen anything like this i was really stressed about it and then um that was one one um, really eye-opening experience and then i guess just I don't know if anyone's seen the the European Championships in Holland in 2017 and they had like 30,000 fans just following the team everywhere. And that kind of orange, you know, orange army that they had was evident in in 2010, I think 2011 was was in Holland. And those two years really set me up for what football could be, what women's football should be.
5: Well, let
1: let's talk about this recent um i think it's fair to call it a fiasco with the european super league and what what does it what does it show us about attitudes towards women 's football and you know how how would it of this proposal how would it have affected the women 's game
0: My initial thought was that women 's football once again feels like a little bit of a collective add on to to men's football and a and an afterthought it it was quite distasteful that it was the whole strategy was boiled down to one line in the, in the breakaway announcement. And I think it kind of just highlights the, the sort of expectation that women's football is the little sister of men's football. And I think, you know, the culture here in the UK is all about men's football and and not only just men's football, you know, that really elite tier of men's football. So I think it was really clear that the, the, the people who developed this this idea, I guess, of the breakaway ESL league didn't have a clue, not only about the fabric and culture of football here in England, but about women's football more specifically, because the lack of inclusion about for teams like Lyon or Wolfsburg, who are the two most successful women's teams in Europe just probably highlights a little bit of of the lack of knowledge or the lack of care and consideration and that collective add-on that, oh, God, we just have to include women because, you know, it'll look, it'll look good for corporate social responsibility and if we don't, there'll be a bit of a backlash. And, yeah, it just highlighted that afterthought and that, that distasteful um, sour taste in the mouth, I guess.
1: And, and does it in some ways, you know, is it uh, like a good analogy for the wider problems with all this because they're just looking at how much money is potentially involved, and women's football to them, I guess, would still be a relatively small amount at this stage, so their they're kind of inclusivity doesn't, doesn't matter to them.
0: Women's football looks good for corporate social responsibility. At the moment, there's a real surge in these social justice campaigns that we see led by athletes, and I think women's football can be can be bracketed in that way. I think if you look at like Manchester City, Chelsea, um, Manchester United, who really don't have a long-standing history in women's football, all of a sudden they've got this real big investment and this big surge in, in investment in their women's team, and they are seeing you know progress. That you know Manchester City and Chelsea are now you know Champions League semi-finalists. So with investment, women's football can improve. It's like anything; if you invest in it, you know inevitably you see a degree of improvement.
1: How has the pandemic affected women's football specifically in this country?
0: There's been real, real big challenges for for women's football. Manchester City, for example, their their, um, revenue is based on, I think, 80% of commercial activity. So if you think about that, women's football was completely halted for for a year. The, The league was curtailed initially when the pandemic broke out. The champions were given, you know, by some crazy method that the FA divvied up that actually might not have happened if the league was allowed to play out. I think there's some of the challenges that we see. So, you know, the, the commercial activity, the lack of fans, the lack of conversation around women's football. I think women's football really benefits from using its momentum. So you'll see from 2015, from the semi-finals, from the bronze medal of England's performance in Canada to the 2019 World Cup in France, the momentum was growing and huge. That then sort of trickles down into the FAWSL. So people's interest is heightened because you see players who have played in the World Cup, etc. And without that interest and that competition to look forward to and, and fans being able to attend the game, that was really problematic. You can sometimes get carried away when you're watching women's football and you see these real big performances by, you know, clubs and also, you know, the international team that women's football is, you know, it's ameliorated, it's massive. And actually, the the conditions for, for players are really problematic and I think COVID served to highlight that.
2: Alex, tell us what you think needs to happen now to support uh women's football um in in the future. We, we we um we'd be really interested to know what you think needs to happen.
0: Yeah and it's it's a it's a real difficult question that Ed because everything is underpinned by money sadly, particularly in football and I think continued investment is something that the game really needs. So investment is key. I think there needs to be a complete strategy analysis of women's football particularly by the FA because whilst they've controlled women's football for the last 10 years and and, and grown it fairly well, it's not sustainable in its current model. So there needs to be questions asked, uh, you know, a systematic review of finances, revenue turnover, all of the important stuff that, you know, maintains these, you know, football as as an occupation for players. And most importantly, I guess, is the media interest. I think the media have a huge responsibility in this country to continue to shine a light on women's football. I think media coverage of women's sport as a whole is something around 4%. And if you think about the sports coverage in this country on, you know, in every media force, it's, it's pitiful. And so I think the media have a huge responsibility to continue their, you know, shining a light and, and telling us the stories of women's football, importantly, but, you know, growing that that um, media report and as well, I think that that's a crucial component to, to continue I mean, to grow the game.
2: I mean, it's really interesting talking to you because I suppose there's two thoughts uh, running through my mind, which is one, and your last point addressed this, we're such a long way away aren't we from from sort of equality for the women's game that's one thought but I suppose the second thought is knowing a little bit about you and having read some of the stuff that you've written about universal basic income and other things you don't necessarily want to kind of reproduce the inequalities of the men's game in the women's game do you so so it's like you want equality we would want equality but but we don't want to just emulate the very imperfect men's game that we have
0: I think it's a great point that you make, Ed, because, and I'm always banging this drum, and I sound like I'm just a walking contradiction, but I think the women women's football in this country, when, you know, since the inception of the FAWSL, had a really good opportunity to to change the way that we do football in this country. And I think, unfortunately, we've completely missed the boat because I think the expectation and the, the strategic priorities now of the FA... Are to encourage um, men 's clubs to take on women 's teams and and sort of run them in the way that they 'd run their male male um, teams and this is the problem because we just see football as as businesses, but professional sports teams are intrinsically different to to other you know businesses other businesses want to eliminate competition professional sports teams need competition to thrive, and I think that that is a is a really interesting um problem that women you know that football has and i think we had the opportunity to change the face of women's football and do football differently um but unfortunately i think we've missed the boat i guess as academics and, and people who love football it's it's really on us to to keep the pressure on and i really try and call out these injustices and inequalities that we see in professional sports
2: well, look, it's really inspiring um, to talk it's to you. It's so eye opening. I, eye-opening I t- t- totally is. about
1: what goes on in academia. I had no idea.
2: <laughs> I thought it was just people in
1: offices and cardigans. It is you a
2: little know,
0: bit of that, thought, though, <laughs> Jeff.
2: You thought that sort of dog eat dog world was just in podcasting, did you? Jeff? Yes, yeah, Pod- I did, yeah. Podcasting and politics. Yeah. Well, look, Alex Colvin, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Your, your journey, is a fascinating journey, and you're obviously doing incredibly important work. Uh, so, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's been brilliant. Thank you all.
2: Well, what did you think?
1: I surprised myself with how compelling I found everybody because you know I've, I've no interest in football and, and almost to the point where I stopped listening when people started talking about it. One thing I thought was worth mentioning was I think football clubs are in a way are a, a, a good example for how investors can behave anyway but because of the way a community thinks about a football club, we're, we're kind of more aware or more passionate about it because it, it is that model where, you know, often venture capital firms or, or whoever buy up companies. If it doesn't work, then, you know, it's, it's nothing to them. And then they go away, leaving the devastation behind, exactly. be that, you know, job exactly. losses or whatever it is. But when it's a, a
2: football club, we're just, more more aware of that and it's sort of exactly right i I mean that is surely right it's a sort of parable for our times isn't it i mean Mm. it sort of goes to what things are commodities to be bought and sold in the market and to what extent do they have a character which needs to be protected from the market and and you know i think what the european super league thing showed starkly was that fans believe the public believes that Football clubs have a character which goes well beyond the market, but but that in a sense is just the European Super League thing is just one example of the issues that football clubs face, and and that that tension. And I thought all I guess a bit like you were just incredibly compelling. You know, I thought Uli with his story about Germany, uh, Thomas talking about some of the wider uh, lessons, video with her kind of ideas about what could be, would be done. And I thought Alex was incredibly inspiring about. Well, just like a vision for women's football and, and the and the role it can play. So so I agree with you. I think it you know, in a way in a sense it was a it is a football episode, but it's much, much bigger than that.
1: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook
5: or tweet at Cheerful Podcast.
1: Ooh, we're in the outro.
2: Well, we're in the outro. So very quick thing, I'm a klutz. You think that's well established. Um I was canvassing my constituency the other day. We passed by a drain. Somebody said, oh, my God, I heard some keys fall down that drain. Ensue me looking for my bicycle keys, not able to find my bicycle keys, oh, no. certain that the bicycle keys had fallen down the drain. Um, much sort of gnashing of teeth. <laughs> uh, very, very good, very good uh, colleague of mine. Uh, in the Labour Party, did a lot of looking through the drain to find the keys. Anyway, the keys turned out to be in my bag. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not in the drain. So that is the price of being a klutz. Not only your klutziness, but also that you can cause some <laughs> alarm, gloom and despondency. <laughs> oh, that poor person. Sleeves rolled up, up to their elbows in that drain you got the, so big shout out to Mark. Um, You get a sort of sense of the, uh, you know, the the challenge of uh, of working with me. So, you know, there you go. Don't let that put you off applying for Ed Factor, though. I promise you, as my chief of staff, you won't have to be putting your hand down a drain. At least I get points for honesty and (laughs)
6: self-deprecation,
2: don't I? Now we've got something excited
1: to tell you. Watch your podcast feed. Because in the next couple of days, something's going to appear and it's an absolute treat. Uh, it's a guest making a return to the podcast. It's the brilliant Michael Lewis, who Ed, you're this enormous fan of, uh, and uh, as am I.
2: Um, he has a new book. Honestly, this book is really compelling. It's about the pandemic. Uh, the book is is called "The Premonition: A Pandemic Story," and we have a great conversation, really fascinating conversation with with Michael. So listen out for that, and it's gonna, it's there's gonna be some sort of um, I wouldn't call it double dipping. What would you call it? Sort of, you know, it's double bubble, double bubble, double bubble, double bubble. So the the that uh, this this excellent episode uh, is in your feed, obviously, because you're listening to it, uh, and Michael Lewis is hard on its heels because. Uh, of publication day of his book don't miss it he's he's so brilliant don't miss it i'd like to thank our guests uli Hesser, thomas hannah vidya alexson and alex colvin
1: emma caution produces our podcast all the research and guest booking and background is done by joel pierce with backup from joe kenyon at goldfish a big hello to all the people at left foot forward the good folk there gail lofthouse is our announcer Ed Seed composed the music, James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been CFAX, he's been the Oracle and these have been Reasons to Read Teletext. Mm-hmm.